you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of or around you, and uh, you, can, you can read uh, from there on page 820, uh, where again, we're in chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel, uh, verses 13 through 21. You're check, on. check, check, yo, yo, yo. <laughs> there we go. All right. So if, if you don't know Robbie, this is Robbie. Uh, Hello. Great, great dad jokes. <laughs> great. That's good. Thank you. Um, that's debatable. All right. So we're, uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from their boat, <coughs> withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. Go ahead and play for, for us, Robbie. Oh, okay, sorry. <clears throat> uh, Lord, we love you very much, and uh, we praise you, and we worship you. And uh, we lift you high. Uh, would you please uh, soften our hearts, um, open our minds uh, to what you want to uh, teach us this morning. Please uh, sharpen us. Pray that we would encourage one another and build each other up and uh, help us to hear the word. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks for standing. You may, be, you may have a seat. Uh, Rob, thanks for reading. And uh, man, what a great text. What a great text this is. It's a very familiar text to us, right? Um, and so I'm going to have a, a word of encouragement to you uh, based on the uh, familiarity of this text here in just a moment. But uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is, is one of Christ's most famous miracles. And I really want us to see it as just that. It's a miracle, right? Um, anytime uh, the Lord can take uh, five loaves and two fish or anyone, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a miracle, um, sometimes I need the Lord to do that kind of miracle in my home because the bread is gone in one sitting. Uh, we are to that phase of, of, of life where we're buying, like we're buying the uh, 60 pack of eggs. Walmart has started doing that. Anybody else do that? We buy that 60 pack of eggs and it's actually gone um, in, a, in a week or two. Um, and so we're, we're, we're averaging one of those a week. So we need this miracle working power of Jesus uh, to come in and multiply things for us at times. But um, this is one of Christ's most famous miracles. Uh, the, the most famous, of course, being his resurrection. Um, and I know that this, this text isn't specifically about his resurrection, but I would be remiss if I did not uh, proclaim to you right now that Jesus Christ is risen. Um, he's alive. Uh, we worship a, a, a savior who is not just a prophet. Um, he is not just a good teacher. Uh, he is Lord. Uh, he is Lord over all things. And Jesus Christ died on the cross, and he rose and is alive today. 
that, of course, being his greatest miracle. Uh, but the feeding of the 5,000 being another one of those miracles that uh, is, is very well known. In fact, all four Gospels um, that are in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, don't just record, there's not just record of this, but there is record at length um, of this story. And so some of them are shorter than the others, uh, but none of them are really considered short. Uh, they are all a very extended account of what Jesus did with five loaves and two fish. Um, and that is recorded in all four Gospels. Um, and and these, this story here, the feeding of the 5,000, is, is not really only famous only among Christians, but even non-Christians. Um, those, those in the world who would not consider themselves Christians, uh, if you brought up, hey, who was it that turned five loaves um, and two fish into able to feed 5,000 people? Most people, uh, at least in the Western world, um, if maybe not more places than that, would say, oh yeah, that was Jesus. Now, whether or not those people believe actually that Jesus Christ is their Savior and their Lord, we don't know. Uh, but, but people uh, across the, the spectrum of faith are very familiar with what Jesus did. And so here's my encouragement to us um, in light of that, that it's a story that's almost dangerously familiar to us. Like you saw that we're preaching this text today, and you thought, oh, I know what happened there. I know all the details. I know uh, I've heard tons of sermons on that. Um, but to us within the church, this is almost dangerously familiar, kind of like we talked about back at Christmas time, right? That the Christmas season, the story of the, the incarnation is, is somewhat of a familiar story. Um, and we need the Lord to awaken our hearts and our minds in a fresh way to the power and the significance of what Christ is doing here. Um, and so this is one that if, uh, that, that though it is dangerously familiar to us, um, that, that if we don't allow it to grow stale, and if the Lord by his grace does give us a fresh look into this story, it will give us a great deal of confidence uh, for today, who our Savior is. And so this isn't just some historical, uh, some historical story or historical account. Uh, this is something that, that has great meaning and significance for us today. And so here's, here's the thing. One of the, in light of it being dangerously familiar, one of the, the challenges, uh, if you've ever preached or if you've, maybe you write, maybe you're a writer. Um, and I would say maybe the, 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 uh, the inclination towards what I'm about to say is more relevant for those of you who write, but also for those who preach. One of the challenges of, of preaching a text like this, and one, one that was difficult for me to even o- overcome as, as I studied and prepared, is the urge that I have frequently to say something new or something really clever. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, I've got actually, I actually have one of my Grimke uh, seminary classmates in here with us. Uh, Brandon, say hey to everybody. He's right there. He's in the back. Brandon's a pastor uh, in Durant, uh, and, and him and his family are up in town this week, and, and we start class tomorrow at Grimke Seminary. But here's the thing. I, I'm chasing a major rabbit trail here. I don't, only have, I don't only have one Grimke classmate in here. We got two, because uh, for those of you who haven't heard, Thomas is also starting Grimke Seminary this semester. Uh, starts tomorrow, and we'll be working towards a master's degree as well. Um, and so by God's grace, I graduate in April. We'll be done with my degree. Thomas is just starting um, and Brandon, I don't know where you're, what, are you graduating? One day. Someday. Okay. That's right. That's, that's the story for most of us. I bring, I bring up my Grimke classmates because one of the things that we hear a lot, um, in, in our seminary is essentially, um, we don't got to say anything new. Uh, we, we, we're just going to kind of go with the old stuff. Um, and, and the old stuff is the stuff that typically sticks around, you know that? Um, and so we're not like legalists, right? Or Pharisees by any account of the imagination, but when something maybe becomes stale, 
maybe the issue is not so much in the story of itself. Maybe it's more with us. Maybe, maybe some of the staleness that we have, uh, you know, we often bring this up because I think it's very relevant. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we talk about a lot with the Lord's Supper is, well, won't it just grow stale every week? Well, well yes, that's very possible uh, because we are human beings and we are limited. Uh, the, the beautiful thing is, is that the Lord is not stale and not limited, and he has told us that when we come together, this is what we do. Um, and so that if something grows stale, we don't just kind of let it implode. We ask the Lord to make something fresh. We ask the Lord, would you help me see the significance because you have been the one to ordain this and not us. Um, and so the, the, the challenge that I've had in, in preparing this is the urge that I have to, to maybe say something clever or to, uh, you know, you, you know that there's this urge because if you go to YouTube and you type in the feeding of the 5,000 and you'll see all kinds of churches that are like saying things like, go find your 5,000, right? Like, go feed your 5,000. It's like, I don't know of anything more hopeless uh, than to apply this sermon to my, whether or not I have the ability to feed my 5,000. No, Jesus fed 5,000 and that's what we want to see today. And so it's easy to want to be unique and original, uh, truly. Uh, if, if you, like I said, if you write or if you read books, you, you know that. But it also, it, that, what that does is it often leads us to, uh, to an unhelpful moralizing of these stories. Like I said, you go find your 5,000 or just unlock the power within you, right? Um, go, go do those kinds of things. And, and again, at the end of the day, those are just really kind of like defeating messages. Because the, 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 the message here, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is about who Christ is and what Christ has done, and what Christ has the power to do, and why he is worthy of our full trust. Man, what a, what a much better life-giving story, right? Uh, that Christ is, is worthy of our trust. And so if you walk away doing something today, I'm going to give some points of application here at the end, uh, but, but if we are as a church to, to walk away doing something, doing, um, let it be being enamored by this Jesus. Let it be being drawn more deeply into who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished for us by trusting in him. In fact, we'll see in John chapter 6 that that's the exact point of application that Jesus gives to the people who are like, what do we need to do? And Jesus is going to tell us here in just a little bit. And so, man, what a, what a beautiful story. So again, in this story, there are some old truths about Jesus that if there be staleness, it's not in the story or the text, but in us. And so let us ask the Lord to open our eyes to, to new and beautiful things. Not new things, but beautiful things that are there. Can we pray? Can we do that real quick? All right, let's pray. Father, we uh, come across this text today that is very familiar to us, um, that, that we may be able to, to answer all the, uh, the, the, the Bible quiz questions on and uh, may have a, a great sense of famili familiarity with. Um, but Lord, we also know that if it's not uh, if, if it wasn't for your spirit, um, that, that we may know the facts of the story, but uh, we would not be able to comprehend or understand. Um, and so we ask uh, and we just confess our dependence um, upon your spirit and uh, the fact that um, the spirit illumines God's word and God's truth to us. Um, and so, Lord, may we as a, as a body just admit that together. And, uh, Lord, we know that... Um, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so we thank you that this text, um, even, even though the grass withers with the winter time and the flower fades with the winter time, 
that there is no season in which your word um, is not pertinent, uh, relevant, and speaks directly to us in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So here's what I want us to do. Um, In an effort to not say anything original or new, uh, we're going to just look at three uh, three things that Jesus shows us in this text, three things that we see about Jesus in this text, and they're three familiar words. You're going to be like, oh yeah, those are the same exact words that I would have picked if I would have outlined that. I'm going to give you the three things that I think that we see and that we ought to ponder this morning as we read. And so in feeding more than 5,000 people with just five, lives, five loaves and two fish, Jesus shows us first his great compassion, secondly his great power, and thirdly his great provision. Um, so we see the compassion of Jesus, the, the power of Jesus, and the provision of Jesus. So we're going to read these uh, first two verses, uh, three verses, 13 through 15. Uh, let's read that together. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So we see Jesus' compassion. We see that the the launch pad into what Jesus does here is is the compassion and the care of Christ for the people who are around him. And so it's not uncommon in in the gospel narratives for Jesus to be interrupted. You know that? So, so if you, as you read through the gospel narratives, it's quite common that Jesus finds himself in a place by himself um, and then is interrupted by people. Um, and, and I think this is important and it's intentional. There's a reason why over and over again we see that happen in the gospels, why we see that happen. And so we see this many times. This is one of those times. Jesus pulled away into a desolate place. It says that he had heard about uh, the death of John the Baptist, and he pulled away, and he got away, and was on his own. And yet, he is the word the, the scriptures don't say interrupted, but we can just kind of deduce that he's interrupted. That that time is is interrupted, and so he withdrew from from uh, from hearing of, of the death of John. And pretty soon, the crowds uh, heard where he was, and they followed him there. So I don't know about you. Uh, but, but being bothered in a moment when I don't want to be bothered reveals a lot about me. <laughs> like, uh, all day yesterday, I'm trying to wrap up this sermon um, in, in my house. And uh, I, I'm telling you, the, the, the cutest little blue-eyed, brown-head girls walk in every five minutes. And at first, it's kind of cute. And then it gets to, like, you better not come in this room again. Um, and so, I don't know about you, but whether you work from home... Uh, whether you're working on something what seems to be significant or important, being bothered in that moment kind of brings some stuff up in you that you might not have known that was there. And so being bothered reveals a whole lot about me. Well, the same is true for Jesus. Uh, Being bothered and interrupted reveals something about who Jesus is. And what does it tell us about who Jesus is? Does Jesus ever... Uh, respond in a, in a way to where he chastises. Maybe he does. There, there may be an instance or a scenario where, where he does. I, I can't think of it. I can't, none of it calls, comes to mind. I'm sure some of you will remind me later if, that, uh, if that's there. But, but most of the time when Jesus is interrupted, the way that he responds is in a posture of compassion. And not only compassion, but in a way to where he meets the needs of the people who are interrupting him. And so 
being bothered, interrupted, reveals something about who Jesus is. And I think that's why these interruptions are often recorded, because the Gospels are literally just a portrait about who Christ is. So when you read the Gospels, please don't come with more of a posture of, all right, what are the rules, than you do with a posture of, who is this Jesus? Who is, who is this Savior? Who is this Messiah who is busted onto the scene? Now, does Jesus command certain things? Yes. Jesus tells his disciples, go and teach all that I've commanded you. Go and make disciples. There are things that Jesus certainly commanded that, let me just say right now, are not just relevant for that day and for only the Jewish people, but are relevant for all believers everywhere for all of time. And so there are certainly things that Jesus command, but I would say that the primary thrust of the Gospels is for us to just simply behold the Savior, to see who he is, and to, and to respond accordingly. To, to respond accordingly, we'll see some of that more in just a minute. So what do these interruptions reveal to us about Jesus? Well, what they reveal to us about Jesus is that he's not irritable. He doesn't just tolerate people. Um, he's compassionate. We could accurately say that he's actually eager to meet the needs of those who come to him. He is eager to show mercy. He is eager with grace. Now, will he, he will by, as, as, uh, as, as uh, Lamentation says, he will by no, is it not, not, no, it's not Lamentations. I'm, I'm getting totally messed up. I believe it's Isaiah. He will by no means clear the guilty. He is one of, of justice and one of holiness and one of purity. But, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than ours. He is ready and eager to extend mercy and compassion to those who seek him. But as we will see over and over in the Gospels, those who are prideful in their rejection of him, he has no hesitation turning them away. But those of us who come to him in a posture of humility and of seeking him and asking for his mercy, asking for his provision, he is as, as one Puritan puts it, he is more eager to give than you are to receive it. And so that's what these, these interruptions tell us, that over and over again, that you seek Christ, and Christ is ready to show mercy, ready to forgive, ready to provide. And so what a beautiful truth that we see just out of the gate. That's what sets the stage for what he does for these people. And so let's read verse 16 through 19, where we see not only Christ's compassion, but in these next verses, we see his power. Verses 16 through 19. Would someone just read that out loud, 16 through 19? Read it real loud. All of us know people who are really compassionate, right? Who's, uh, you, don't, you don't say it out loud, but uh, when I say the word compassion, <clears throat> besides Jesus, obviously, someone pops into your mind. Uh, you, you know of someone who you're just like, yeah, that's a really compassionate person. They're, they're patient. They, they have compassion. They, they have a heart for people. They love people. But, but think about something. It's one thing to be, to be driven by compassion and to want to do something and to want to meet a need, it's a whole other thing to be driven by compassion and to have the power to fully meet the need. And that's what we see in Jesus. Jesus is one who is fully compassionate, 
But what we see in this part is that he is fully powerful and capable and sufficient to meet the need. Isn't that amazing? So again, hey, compassion is a great thing. If you're compassionate, you look a lot like Jesus. Uh, If you're not compassionate, you don't look anything like Jesus. Compassion is something that reflects the Savior. Um, And and yet the, the, the good thing is, is that even in our own compassion, our own compassion is insufficient to fully meet the needs of those who we are trying to serve. Jesus is one who is full of compassion and fully capable of meeting the need because Jesus alone is all powerful. It's a, a beautiful thing. So Jesus shows us here that not only does he want to meet a need, he has the ability to, to meet it. This, this principle reminds us of the leper in Matthew chapter 8. Um, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 8, um, there's, a, there's a leper who comes to Jesus. And man, what a, this is a beautiful exchange. This is, this is just coming off of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the first story out of the gate of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is Jesus cleansing a leper. And, and let me just read that verses. Uh, I'm just going to read verse uh, one, through, 1 through 3. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So the, the leper displays great faith in the ability. By the way, I, 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 really, I truly do believe that the theme of that chapter is great faith. He says in the very next section to the Roman centurion, and no one in all of Israel have I seen such, such great faith. And so I think that the, the theme there is faith that people have in Jesus' power and ability to do the thing that they're asking him to do. And so <clears throat> uh, the leper displays great faith in Christ's ability to, to heal him, but, but comes to Jesus humbly, not presuming upon Jesus, but posturing himself humbly before Jesus. And so... Church, this is where we, what we need to see. The proper, what we see here and what we see, man, isn't that snow beautiful? Wow, that's amazing. Uh, the, the proper, I just saw it. It caught, caught me off guard. Um, the proper posture before the Lord is, is not give me, give me, give me. Now, you can say give me, give me, give me and be confident in, in the Lord's ability to provide what you're asking. But what you're not doing is being humble before him, say, realizing that he is one who is hired. So the proper posture is not give me, give me, give me, but Lord, you are able and I am needy. You are able and I'm, I'm the needy one here and you're the giver one here. <laughs> That's bad, bad language, sorry, bad, bad English. Um, I'm, I'm the one who needs and you are the one who supplies. And that's what we see in the leper who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you will, you can. Not if you can, you will. No, his, his faith was in the fact that Jesus was able. What he was asking the Lord to do was to intervene for him in such a way that he could not intervene for himself. And so also just notice in this text that the visibility of this miracle. We kind of talked about this last week. Uh, kind of talked about you've got Herod who is acknowledging the works of Jesus. Now, he doesn't ascribe them to Jesus. He says, this must be John the Baptist. But remember, the works of Jesus are unavoidable. Um, and so, so notice just the, the visibility of this miracle. John's account tells us that the crowds, um, that, that the crowds took major notice and, and wanted to take him by force and to make him king. 
And so at first, like, if you read just Matthew's account, uh, as we studied this week in our Wednesday morning sermon study, we were kind of like, I wonder if the crowds even knew. I wonder if the crowds even realized. I, I think they did. Now, I, I, don't know, I don't know at what level they did, but we know at least at some level they did because in John it says they saw the sign and then they wanted to take him by force and make him the king because they were like, this dude's doing some really awesome stuff. We want to we we take him. And, and so the crowds notice what's going on. And, and Matthew tells us that there's 5,000 men besides women and children. So there's, there's some, people, some people say there's over 15,000, 20,000 people here. And so this is just another, I, I believe, attesting to, to the credibility of the reports of the, of the works of Jesus. Because... As, as you know, I, like an eyewitness re- report is, is, a, is a highly credible source in court. You know that? Um, I'm not saying it's like the chief. Some people say it's the chief one, but others will be like, well, no, it's like this or, or that. So, so I, I didn't try to be too, too over the top. It's just a highly credible source in the court. That in court, if you have eyewitness account, you have a, a pretty credible source there. You have a pretty credible thing there. And, and here, you have thousands of people who saw it. Tens of thousands. You got tens of thousands of people who saw it, and they would have had a chance to deny it, but they didn't. So, so if I'm trying to make up a story, I'm probably not going to make up a story that 5,000, 20,000 people saw it. I'm probably going to be like, well, this dude saw it, and he's the crazy guy. Um, just don't ask him about it. No, you've got thousands of people who are seeing this and are attesting to the fact Jesus just did something. Now, it doesn't seem that their response is appropriate. They don't want to make him lord of their lives. They just want to make him the king of their nation. Um, and so, so, so they're not responding quite the way that they ought to, uh, that they ought to. but um, if you've got all these people, that's a, a pretty big deal. By the way, if we're talking about resurrection too, we, we're going to kind of go back to the resurrection. The same is true of the 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. 500 people saw Jesus. Now, if Paul is writing something like that within the generation of the time where all those people would have still been alive, then don't you think that some critic or somebody who is walking away from their faith could have gone and asked one of those 500 people? Paul, Paul put himself in a really vulnerable, vulnerable position when he said 500 people saw Christ, especially if he's lying. If he's lying, someone can go talk to one of those 500 people, but there are no accounts that anybody did that. There are 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus, and that's a massive claim because, again, if I want to make up a lie, I'm just going to say, well, there's just a couple of us, and, and yeah, we don't know where they're at today. No, Paul's saying, no, there's 500, and, and you can go talk to them. You can go talk to those people. He's, he's not afraid because the resurrection is true. The resurrection happened. The resurrection is the most true thing that has ever happened in all of history from, from many different standpoints. Again, just this, this, this small fact that, that maybe we would have missed in this text, the fact that all these people saw him, this is, this is why. This is one of those reasons, just one of many. This is why the scriptures will say that it is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. Psalm 14.1 says it's the fool who says that because look at all the evidence. Look at all that is stacked in favor of who Christ is. Man, what a beautiful truth. The, the power that we see in Jesus here also sets him up, not just against all their gods and all their prophets in the world. Jesus is the greatest. Um, he, I'm not trying to do like a Donald Trump impression here, like he's great, you know, that whole thing. Uh, no, but he's, he's the greatest. 
He is, he is the, the greatest of, of all who has ever lived because he died and was buried and was resurrected. And so the reason why I bring that up is not just some random thing, but because it also sets him up as greater than the prophets who came before him. Uh, we see very similar accounts in the Bible that have to do with bread and people and power of God. We see very similar accounts in Moses and in Elisha. So Moses in Exodus chapter 16, uh, Elisha in 2 Kings 4. What those prophets were was they were utterly dependent upon intervention from heaven to feed the people. They could not provide bread for themselves. They could not provide bread for the people who needed the bread. They were utterly dependent. By the way, that's a really good thing. I'm not in any way trying to dog their dependence because guess what? If you're like, yeah, stupid Moses and Elisha, they, they were, sorry, if I, sorry for saying that. Um, silly Moses and Elisha, they were just dependent upon God. Let me just remind us, every one of us in here are utterly dependent upon God. Um, and so let me just, let me just humble us and, and, and humble myself um, and remind us of that. But the prophets who were great, they were great in the sight of God. They were mouthpieces for God, for the people of God. They were utterly dependent on intervention from heaven uh, to feed the people. Jesus, though, Jesus, however, in this passage, though he does look up to heaven and though he does stop and pray, only does so what it says to bless, to just thank the Lord, to bless the Lord, to, to say, Lord, you, you supply this. However, what this text is meant to show us and what Matthew is trying to show us that Christ himself, Jesus Christ himself, as the second named person of the Trinity, can fully provide and meet this need on his own. He is fully able, he is fully capable in and of himself. When he looks up to heaven, he's not begging God to do it. He's just saying, God, we're doing it. And he's thanking the Lord for it. He blesses the Lord is what the text says. And so Christ himself can fully meet and provide this need, not because he's merely a prophet, because, but because Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord over all things and over, even over this need. Man, what a powerful truth that Jesus is able to provide this, this need. And then thirdly that we see, we see the compassion of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and then in verses 20 and 21, just the, the provision of Jesus. Let's read, the, uh, if someone would just read those two verses, verses 20 and 21. So this account closes <clears throat> with the comment and with the record from Matthew that they all ate and were satisfied. Isn't that amazing? It says there were, there were uh, baskets left over. How, by the way, how many baskets does it say? You think that's an accident? Twelve disciples? Twelve baskets? Man, I, I, I don't know what it means. I'm just saying I don't think it's an accident. Uh, that's, that's amazing. And it's not an accident that Matthew put it there. You know, that was, that's like, okay, did you really need that detail? Anybody, any, uh, I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble. Any of you husbands have super detail-oriented wives? That's a good thing. It's good. Or, okay, sorry, let me say it this way. Ladies, you got any super detailed, uh, detail-oriented husbands? That's great. Um, sometimes it's like, I, I, don't, I don't know that I needed that detail. Um, that's not the case with Matthew. We need that detail. We just don't know why. And it's a, it's a very intentional detail. Um, and there's a reason why it wasn't 13 baskets or 11 baskets, but it was 12. Um, and that's, that's the, the beauty that we have in the scriptures. So this account closes with the comment, they all ate 
and they were satisfied. John's account immediately followed. John 6, by the way. You might go over to John 6. That's, that's kind of where we'll be. Uh, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there, but I do want you to see um, some, some pretty significant things here in John 6. Um, John 6, uh, beginning in verse 1. Really, the, really the, uh, you've got this bread chapter in John, and it's John 6. So for, uh, for my carb lovers, John 6 is the best. Um, and so um, we've, we've got this feeding of the 5,000 in John 6. And so, again, the account in Matthew closes with they, they all ate and they were satisfied. Um, John's account immediately follows this miracle with Jesus telling the crowds, I am the bread of life. That's not accidental either, that, that Jesus would take this time to teach. So, so just as when we take communion, it is but a foretaste of what we will one day experience eternally with Christ so this feeding is to serve as only a small taste of what Jesus is more eager to do, more fully eager to do, and that is to satisfy people's lives and hearts. Hey, I've fed you. And Jesus is going to say in John 6, essentially, you're, you're missing it. You're looking for, for this kind of bread. You're looking for this kind of water later in John. You're looking for this kind of temporal satisfaction. But I am the bread of life, is what Jesus says. Partake of me, and you will never hunger again. Partake of me and you will never be unsatisfied, is what he says. It reminds us of Matthew 5, 6 in the Beatitudes, beautiful verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Man, we hunger and thirst for all sorts of things, right? There's lots of things that we want. Man, like, I, I, I don't know why I get so angry at meteorologists, um, I don't know about you, sometimes I go to their Facebook feeds and, and, and I see Damon Lane post updates on the snow and I see all the people uh, like ridiculing him for the way the weather changes and there's part of me that's like, I'm just as mad at Damon as they are because he said there was going to be six inches and now he's just saying there's going to be like half an inch, right? We all long for something. <laughs> for me, it was snow. For me, it was an absolute, just an absolute whiteout today. Um, and we all long for something. We all are seeking satisfaction in something. And Jesus says, but blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the righteousness of Jesus, for a pure and holy life, to be pure in God's sight, to be pure before God. And Jesus says, I am able to satisfy that longing that you have fully. Like he doesn't even have to put in like an adverb on satisfy. Like fully satisfied? No, when Jesus says satisfy, it means like all of it. He doesn't, he doesn't have, to, he doesn't have to, to, to put any kind of words around that. He says, no, you will be satisfied. There was, there was absolutely no one, what this text shows us, there was absolutely no one who could have met the need of 5,000 plus people on the spot except for Jesus. Only Jesus. Not, now, that, that means Jimmy John's, McDonald's and Chick-fil-A even could not have filled all those people in that short of notice, in that short of time. But Jesus just speaks. Jesus is the creator of the world. He speaks and people are filled and satisfied and there is some left over. Jesus is both the, both the provider of Genesis 22. You know, when, when Abraham goes, takes his son Isaac um, up to the mountain and, and, and God tells Abraham to sacrifice and there's a ram caught in the thicket and what does Abraham just knee-jerk say? The Lord has provided. God is provider. Now, 
Jesus is both the one who provides the sacrifice that is necessary, and he is the sacrifice. Jesus is, he is the provider and the provided one is who Jesus is. And so no one can provide for you what you most deeply long for except for Jesus. That's it. That's it. So that's what we see. We see Jesus' compassion, we see his power, and we see his provision. I want to give you two points of application here at the end. I'm kind of tagging these on to the end because I don't want you to think that these are like, uh, one of these is the main thing, um, and then another one is one that's just an encouragement for us today as God's people. Uh, The ultimate application here is found in John 6, where where immediately after performing this miracle, Jesus answers the exact question, "What, what, what what must we do to be doing the works of God? That's what John 6 verse uh, 28 says. It says, when they found him on the other side, and and from my reading, it looks like the same crowd that was just fed. Um, It it says that they they found him on the other side. Um, They said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So, again, the ultimate application here is found in John 6, where Jesus answers that question. By the way, Jesus loves this question. This is also not the first time that Jesus answers a similar question about eternal life and about inheriting eternal life. And, you know, he he sees it in all sorts of forms. And he often responds, and many times he responds actually to the disappointment of the one asking. Because so many times what the person is asking is, no, like, what do I need to do, Jesus, to earn favor with God? What do I need to do to earn God's favor? Do, Do I need to keep the law? Do I need to do good works? Do I need to do all of these things? And Jesus over and over says there's no work There is no modification in your behavior that Jesus requires in order to stand rightly before God. There's no work. There's no behavior modification. No, nothing. What is required, what Jesus says here, what is required is that you believe in him on whom the Father has sent. That's what the text says. They say, what must we do? And he says, okay, you want to work? You you want me to, to, uh, to scratch your work itch? Uh, Then this is, this is what that, that, that work is to believe on him. To place your trust in Christ alone, not any of your good works, not any of, of what you may do to, to, um, to receive the favor of God, but to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what the text says. Without faith in Christ, you may be temporarily satisfied with a drive through lunch, but you will never experience the kind of satisfaction that you most deeply long for, that only Jesus can provide. And then there's another application here, but it can only be fully lived into through trust in Christ. Um, for those of you who don't trust Christ, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what to tell you um, other than to trust Christ, <laughs> other than to believe him. Uh, but for those of you who do trust Christ, uh, this application may be very pertinent to you and encouraging to you today. And so I can tell you this with all the confidence in the world. And there have been times where I've been like, well, I can't really say something that confidently. I can't say something that heavy-handed in, in the pulpit. But it's like, no, the Bible tells us this, and, and this is what it tells us with all the confidence in the world. The Lord will always provide for you. The Lord will always provide. Child of God, the Lord will always provide for you. 
Uh, one of my favorite stories about provision uh, comes from David and Jana Sutherland. Just asked them about their time in Colorado several years ago and, and, the, and the provision that God gave. I hope it's okay that I mentioned that. I figured it was because you've shared it with lots of people. And it's, a great, and it's a great thing to share. You ought to share the way that the Lord has provided, right? Um, the Lord will always provide. He will always provide for, and I, listen, I'm, I'm definitely talking about from a spiritual standpoint. I'm definitely talking about that. But can I tell you something else? I'm also talking about from just like a, your, your daily needs standpoint. He, he will. He will always provide. He will provide for you through his son, Jesus. That is ultimate. Uh, the, the greatest need that you have is, is, is uh, salvation from your sins. Um, and you can't do anything to save yourself. Only Jesus can. And so I can tell you with great confidence that Jesus will provide for you in that way, but he will also provide for you in many other ways. And, I'm, and, I, and when I say always, I mean always. He will always provide. And so the question that we're faced with, as an encouragement, the question that we're faced with oftentimes is when, when, we're, when we're contemplating a big decision in our lives um, is, is not what will this cost. So, that, so those of you who are the, kind of the detailed people, those of you who read yourselves out or your spouse out as the detailed people, um, as, as much as detailed, like, you want to know what something's going to cost, right? And by the way, that's generally pretty smart to do. <laughs> Don't be dumb, okay? We're not, we're not, we're not uh, advocating for dumbness here. Um, it, it's generally a, a, good, a good thing to, to, to look at those things. But the, 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 the main question that we're faced with when we're contemplating some kind of big decision in our lives is not primarily what will this cost, but where is the Lord leading? Like where's, where's God leading in this, in this area? What is he, where is he leading um, in, in my life, in my finances, in, in where I'm at, and all of those things? And, and so if we can be certain that the Lord is leading us, and let me say, that's not vague. I think that we can, I think we can be certain. And, I, and by the way, I also think on the same side that like the Lord's will is not as mystical as some people make it. Uh, one of the most helpful things I've ever heard is that God's will for your life is that you would look more like Jesus. And so as you make decisions... As you contemplate things, you say, hey, will this help me look more like Christ? Is this going to lead me more into, into, into holiness, um, into, into a, a life that reflects who my Savior is? Um, then then that, maybe that's your question. But even before that is not what will it cost, but where is the Lord leading? And if you can be certain that the Lord is leading and you are honoring and following him, we can be certain that he will provide for us. Always. Always. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your provision. Uh, we know that you are, we can see the eagerness of your provision for us, um, most notably in your provision of your son, Jesus. If there be any question this morning in our minds of does God really desire to provide and is God really powerful? And is God really, does he care? Then may we look first and foremost at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus gave his life, where he paid for our sin, we went to the grave, and he rose from the dead. And then, Lord, may we see in, in a million other ways uh, your desire and your ability to provide for us in other ways. Uh, may we see uh, the, the fact that, that we have a church family who is uh, very often uh, the first one to step up 
to help meet a need or to provide something in our lives. May we, may we see just in that your grace. Um, may we see that you're not disconnected, um, that, that, that your provision is not disconnected just because it's coming through someone else, that it's actually through, through God's people that you often meet our needs. Um, so Lord, may we lean into to God's people. May we lean into your word. Um, and may we continue to, uh, to follow Jesus each day of our lives. Uh, we are so grateful for what you've done for us. We thank you for, um, for your spirit, the conviction that your spirit brings to us and the gift that your spirit is. And uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, we would be attentive um, to, what, to, to where your spirit leads. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.